What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with Nathan Barry, the founder of an email marketing platform called ConvertKit. It's what I use to send the Indie Hackers newsletter out to about 80,000 subscribers three times a week. How's it going, Nathan? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a long time since you've been on the show. I think you were, it's like May 2017 or something. You were doing $7 million a year in revenue with ConvertKit. Uh, obviously, things have changed to an extreme degree since then. I think you're at something like, correct me if I'm wrong, $28 million a year in revenue today, which is nuts. Yeah, $27.5 million ARR. So it's definitely grown. You know, that's the magic of uh, compound growth is that you give it four or five years and a lot happens. It's absolutely crazy. And I bet you feel pretty different too. One thing I think that's uh, interesting being in your position is that most people I talk to who are like, once they hit like a mil, two mil a year and revenue, they're kind of like, all right, I'm going to stop doing the whole transparency thing. Like it's enough. I don't really want to feed my competitors this information. I think in your situation, like the other big players in email marketing, they're they're not really that transparent. You know, I don't know their revenue numbers. I don't think anybody knows their revenue numbers. Yeah. Well, it makes sense to me that a lot of people stop. I had two good friends of mine in the business space who I think a lot of the people in the indie hackers community would know at a conference who like sat me down and was like, hey, Nathan, this is an intervention. You know, the public numbers were cool up to like 50,000 MRR, 100,000, 200,000. I don't know what, but like, it's time to stop. You're giving your competitors way too much information. We actually had two different competitors at different times. Like, hey, thanks for thanks for that. That's super helpful. <laughs> they were basically saying like, it doesn't serve you anymore. Stop doing it. And I think they had really good points from the business perspective, like the whole build in public thing, um, which is really trendy and popular now. We've been doing that since the beginning. And what ends up happening is the numbers get misconstrued in some way. They get quoted in a way that isn't accurate. Like I think Buffer stopped sharing their numbers like a public barometrics page because they changed how they were calculating MRR. You know, you just get into a bunch of weird things and it's no longer quite as accurate. And and so they moved on. Buffer is still public with their numbers, but in like a, a different format. But then you yeah, you get into like transistor, write message, uh, a ton of other companies have all sort of been like, great, now let's pull that back. So I think that makes sense. I would not recommend that companies share their numbers publicly unless you're doing it for like a mission perspective. If you're doing it for the marketing or the stats or, you know, the attention that it'll get you, that's a short-lived reason. For us, like our mission as ConvertKit is to help creators earn a living. That's what is on this tiny little plaque sitting behind me. You know, it's on everybody's desk. It's, It's like through and through everything that we do. So partially that's in building the software that we build, um, the training, education, everything else. But I think of it as being able to leave, like our public metrics are leaving breadcrumbs for every other founder who will follow us. And I think we've all done this. We're like piecing together, like, oh, at this fundraising announcement, and then the, over here, the founder said this, and I wonder what the growth curve was between that and like, okay, that's 37% annual growth, maybe roughly. Or like you're extrapolating things from, if they said user count and revenue was this, I actually did this with the company today. I can just talk about it. Active Campaign launched. They uh, they had just announced a two hundred fifty million dollar funding round today, at like a three billion dollar valuation. And I was curious what revenue was, and they didn't say what it was. But a year and a half ago or something, they said 
that they were at 90 million a year in revenue and X number of users. And in the new funny announcement, they said how many users they were. And so I like extrapolated out. I, they're at basically 145 million ARR. So you do a lot of that kind of thing um, with companies that like drop hints of public information at, at spots. And what I wanted to do is for any founder coming along who goes, okay, I'm at 20,000 in MRR and I'm really struggling with churn. Like what was ConvertKit's churn when they went from 20,000 to 50,000 of MRR? And like, you can actually go in the dashboard and go back and find that. Or just showing that path. Like I remember when I was at 5,000 in MRR for ConvertKit, I thought getting to 50,000 would be the most incredible thing. And if someone said this business is going to be making, you know, 2.2 million a month in revenue X number of years from now, I would have been like, there's no way that like, that's just not even possible. But a few people like Chris from Wistia, Wade from Zapier, like being friends and, and sharing some of their growth numbers more privately, that made me think like, oh, wow, this is actually possible. So I want to do that for everyone else and say basically like you can grow a company to 27 million ARR and more totally bootstrap. And let me show you all the way along. And that's what makes it worth it to share numbers publicly. And, but if it was just for the marketing, it's, it's not worth it. I wonder if you feel like that like comes back to you in a concrete way. Like you pre-pandemic had the Craft Plus Commerce Conference in Boise. I've been out a couple times. And, like that's where you get to actually like interact with ConvertKit users and fans on the ground. You interact with founders and people creating stuff. And then there's like sort of internet version where you're on Twitter and people might like DM you and talk to you. But like probably the vast majority of people who look at ConvertKit's metrics and compare to their metrics and like use that to educate themselves, like probably never say anything. Like this is sweet and they'll just use it and you'll never hear a single peep from them. Yeah, and I think other people sharing their metrics, like specific examples would be Ruben Gamez from BidSketch, uh, Amy Hoy with Freckle, the time tracking tool. Oh, impactful ones for me were Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale back in 2012 when they launched eBooks and like shared all the metrics publicly. That helped me so much that my mindset has always been, I'm just going to pay it forward and always share my numbers publicly. And so again, when you make a mission driven decision like that, then it's easy and you don't have to get into like weighing the pros and the cons. Payback, what happens after that? Doesn't yeah, matter. exactly. And the other thing is there's this weird thing that happens where there's a lot of metrics public about companies that are say like zero to 25,000 MRR or like just getting started, right? Someone's tweeting and they're like, Oh, I just passed 3000 MRR on Twitter and everyone's celebrating that. And that's amazing. And then you have like Squarespace's S1, which came out the other day, right? And you get to see on that level or Shopify or whoever else, like Salesforce. You can go look up anything you want about their metrics. You know, <laughs> they're publicly traded. And so you end up with like information down here and information all the way up here and then just nothing. In nothing in between, yep. And so I'm like, hey, I'll be one of the companies that like <laughs> shows, you know, numbers in the middle of the journey. That's super cool. And it's like, it's Andy Hackers is bread and butter. Like the stuff that works the best for us on our forum is people posting success stories and doing AMAs uh, and usually sharing their revenue numbers because it gives everybody kind of the chance to see. And it's like you said, it's like a lot of people on the bottom, not very many people in the middle and a lot of people at the top. And at the bottom, I think people just don't care because they're like, well, it's not that much. Who cares? And then the middle is kind of like, well, I don't want to like publicly tell everybody that I'm rich. You know, I don't want to get like robbed. Or I, don't want, I don't want people to like, you know, ask all these questions and like, you know, send me all these weird offers. Uh, and then at the top, it's kind of like, oh, we're going public or, you know, we're super mission driven or something. Something else is right. different. And it's driving when people. At the, at the low end, it's like, that's just barely covering your salary or something. And so that's great. At the high end, everyone knows like you're not, as the founder, you're not taking that money home. 
Yeah, so it's divorced from you personally. Yeah, like the, it's this big company with hundreds or thousands of employees. But in that middle stage, like if you were to say like, oh, we're making $8 million a year, people are like, wow, you are making $8 million. Like, no, <laughs> the company isn't like, and we're spending it all to like build the product and and everything and pay salaries. But people have a hard time separating that. And so I think that's that's part of the challenge. I've been looking at like what you've been up to as an individual, first of all, you seem like super mellowed out. I've never seen you as mellow as you are right now. You feel like you are just like high on life. Everything's golden. You got, you don't have a care in the world. Uh, but on the flip side, you seem like a supercharged Nathan, like online, like you've sort of rebooted your podcast in a big way. I think you've done more episodes this year than almost every other year combined. So it's the, uh, the Nathan Barry show or the art of newsletters. It's kind of got two names. Yeah. It's got a season of the Nathan Barry show. Oh, okay. That's how it works. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to fragment the audience. I still had the feed. I wanted to get going and I didn't know if I want to talk about newsletters forever. And so I was like, right. I, I want to talk about newsletters for the next year for sure. And yeah. so like, let me play with that of it's like art of newsletters on the Nathan Berry show. Well, newsletters are obviously back in like a <laughs> pretty big way. So it's a good time to get into newsletters on top of that. Like your blog is beautiful, sort of encapsulates like everything that you're doing, not only blog posts, but also your podcast, your books and your products and stuff. And you've got like a weekly newsletter that you're sending out that I'm subscribed to. That's super helpful too. And like all this stuff is like, like if that was literally all you did, that would be a lot of work. It's a lot of work maintaining a podcast. It's a lot of work doing a newsletter. But then you also run this like $27.5 million a year uh, SaaS company, which is crazy. So I, I don't know, you're super chill on the outside, but like what you're doing behind the scenes is like crazy supercharged. There's definitely a lot going on. I actually had to swear off new projects um, for the rest of the year because... Uh, it was getting a little bit out of hand. Um, uh, someone on my team, her name's Elizabeth. Who, she's my executive assistant uh, for the last four years now. She was like, "Dude, you gotta, you gotta chill out and stop <laughs> doing new things." Because the other thing, I I do have other things like we have a whole farm that you know of where I live, and we expanded that, so it's now nine acres, and and then we also own now fourteen Airbnbs. <laughs> yeah, as a as side business and. Not to make this more ridiculous, but I just started a new business running a local newsletter for Boise, the city that I live. Jeez, dude. Didn't you like buy a town or something too? I feel like I remember watching a YouTube video where you're like, it's starting a new town from scratch. I'm just an investor uh, in a town, in a ghost town called Cerro Gordo uh, in the, uh, like kind of near Mammoth uh, in California, like in the, okay. between Mount So you're doing like 18 different things and they're all very different <laughs> and they're yes, all very they hard. Every one of those seems pretty hard. <laughs> Well, the trick is to partner, to either hire great people or partner with people on everyone. So like ConvertKit, I feel a lot more chill about because now we've built out like an executive team. And so they're the ones pushing me rather than me pushing them. And then on like the Airbnbs or other things or like the Airbnbs I have partners on. And that's been fun to have like a real world, like take internet money and put it into something tangible. And then also just to have a tangible product to step to sell like an in-person experience rather than a digital one. And I see you crowdsourcing help with uh, Airbnb on Twitter. Like you had some question the other day, like what's the best possible experience you can get yeah. uh, as a guest like as an Airbnb? Replies. I was like, yeah, I replied. I was like a Chromecast and the TV so I can easily play music and something. And there's a bunch of other good suggestions. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like I'm obsessed with user experience and product. And so I want to do the same thing in real life. So that's the Airbnbs. You got the ghost town, you got the newsletter for Boise, and then you got like 
your own personal newsletter, which I think is yeah. probably the most like relevant side project to what you do at ConvertKit, since obviously ConvertKit like powers everybody else to have their newsletters. What's the thing behind like starting a newsletter back up? I actually do have like a Cortland Allen newsletter that nobody knows about that I never send any emails out to. But like I really wrestled with it last year. Like, should I start this back up? Like, what's the benefit? It seems like a great way to own your audience. Yeah, I definitely wanted to be producing content myself again. Like ConvertKit was producing all this content, but I felt really detached from it. And there's some things that as an individual, you can just do better than like a company can. And like, for example, let's say I wanted to get on, I don't know, CBS or the Today Show or, or something, right? Like do national TV um, as a way to promote ConvertKit. There's not like a good path to do that. Yeah. Um, but like as ConvertKit, but as an individual, if you were to write a book and then go on book tour and the book was really like creator economy, you know, like any of this stuff that we're talking about, like that's a very normal path. You know, you're like, oh, here's James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, who is on, you know, on his press tour and like, let's have him on TV. So there's interesting things where sometimes you have way more leverage as a company um, because you've got the team, the brand, everything else, like, you know, it has hundreds of thousands of users and all that. And then other cases where you have more leverage as an individual. And so I started to look for that balance. And basically what I found is, in restarting the newsletter, um, I can piggyback a bit off of the company. Um, but then also I can build connections, uh, with people. Um, and that's restarting the podcast, you know, was really building connections with people, having a lot of conversations in the space and using that to feed a lot of, con uh, content at ConvertKit. Um, the thing in the newsletter is I have like these long form essays that I love to write, like, um, uh, a few of the big ones are like ladders of wealth creation, the billion dollar creator where I'll put like months into, into writing them, getting friends to read it and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I would have this thing where I would publish nothing at all and then like drop one of those and then nothing at all. And so I wanted a way to bridge that gap. And I knew I couldn't write one of those every week. Like there was just no way that was happening. And so like the curated, like, this is what I'm up to. This is what I find interesting newsletter was a way to say, hey, every Tuesday I'll show up in your inbox. I've got useful stuff for, for you. And maybe, you know, once a month or something, that's going to be an essay. And once a quarter, one of those essays will be something that's like a flagship piece of content. Um, but one thing that's been weird is if you let your site go dormant, turns out all your traffic goes away. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like surprise. And so I built the email list to, I think, 28,000 people. And then since I've restarted it, it's just gradually shrunk down to, I guess, just like 25,000, 26,000. Because, you know, every time I send, I lose 80 people, but I'm only getting like eight new signups a day because the traffic isn't there anymore. And I haven't yet rebuilt yep. that. So, you know, it's yeah, a whole, the, whole uh, the curse of the newsletter send where like the churn yeah. really happens when you send an email. <laughs> so like you yeah. want to send an email to engage people, but like the lowest churn newsletter is one where you just have a sign up form on your site and then you never send any email. <laughs> right. The list just keeps growing and growing and no one ever unsubscribes because you know, you never send an email. Magic. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, this whole idea of like, what's the best way to get the word out? Uh, a podcast, a blog, uh, being an author, writing a book, you know, going on, on talk shows is super interesting. I was talking to my brother about this today because, uh, let's take books, for example. Books are like, the most sort of legitimate way to communicate an idea, right? It's like the most professional way. If you tell people you've written a book, they sort of like, you know, they get starry eyed and like, oh, this guy's legitimate. Um, but most books that I've read, like 
Like I read like Sapiens years ago. I can tell you like one idea I got from Sapiens and maybe like four or five facts. I'm like, Homo sapiens is 150,000 years old. Uh, and also, you know, like shared fictions are a good way to keep, you know, large disparate groups of people together. But that book was like hundreds and hundreds of pages long. Um, whereas last week, I have another podcast I'm starting up with my buddy Julian. We had Tim Urban on and another guy named Jason Silva. And we were talking about identity and stories. And Tim was like, he's like, yeah, there's this Paul Graham essay about like your identity. And I was immediately like, keep your identity small. And he's like, that's the one. And we both recognize the exact same essay, the exact same idea. And that essay is like, I don't know, like 800 words. It took like, you know, a tenth, you know, a hundredth as long to write that essay as it is, does to write a book. And yet it like communicated like, the same force of the idea. And so I like the blog approach or the newsletter approach, really, like these 600, 800 word essays where uh, you can really have an impact, but it's not going to take you like six months to write it. Though I would, would challenge that sometimes those short essays take the longest to write, where you're really putting a lot of thought into it because there's an idea that you're wrestling with. Like this is one that I want to write about is what is the most impactful place for your, well, I was going to say your writing. We'll, we'll run with that. Maybe it's your effort overall, right? But if I'm trying to spread an idea, how should I best package it? Where should I put it? Right? Because I could sit down and write a thousand words. And is that best placed on, on Twitter in like a, a super polished essay in like a whole combination of various random blog posts in a book? And this is something that I think a lot of indie creators in particular struggle with is like, where should I apply my effort? And there's very different leverage in each, in each place. And so one thing that I realized for me is like my effort, I believe should go into a book because I think that that will be a step function in the type of audience that I can reach all that. So like the next blog post is not the most useful thing. I should publish the book, but that's the idea behind that not, not the idea behind the book, the idea behind where should you put your effort or your writing, your creativity for the most leverage, I think is a really interesting concept. And I have a bunch of different notes on it, but it's not ready for an essay yet. Like it's going to bounce around in my head for another four or five months. And then I'll write down like the 800 word essay, hopefully that people will reference, you know, for a long time to come. I like that bounce around phase too, because you could have a lot of conversations with other people who are thinking about the same thing and you have these insights yeah. and they put ideas inside your head and you're reading other essays. And then eventually, you know, you sit down to write and like things are sort of clicking, but it's because of all these conversations and all this time that it spends marinating, et cetera. And so uh, you're right. Those things like don't really write themselves. Having those friends who you can riff on ideas with are really important. The Ladders of Wealth Creation post, I probably wrote it over the course of a year but it was really three different conversations with James Clear <laughs> where we were talking about an idea and I wrote notes and later I like built on it and sent it to him. And he's like, that's good. That's interesting. I'll think about it. And then when we get together, like we had, <laughs> we're going to be in person again in a couple of weeks. And yeah. so he's like, we'll chat about it then, you know, and then like on a drive from the airport, he was like, okay, here's my thoughts on it now. And then, you know, and then he edited it down later at the end. He was like, this is amazing, but also like cut out all this crap. Like, what are you even, you know, <laughs> what are you doing with that? It doesn't add to the point. And so having someone like that, you know, do it with James or like Barrett, who's our COO at ConvertKit, like really riffing on these ideas and letting it, letting it build for a long time. And that's a pretty, I mean, that blog post got super mega shared. I feel like everybody read it and it's long. Yeah. I can just put it in word counter. It's like, there's another program essay that I, I really like. Uh, called How You Know, and it talks about like the benefit of reading. You know, even if you forget, if, even if you forget things, it's still good to read because it kind of changes things that you don't even realize are changing about your mindset. And that blog post is like six hundred words, 
And the ladders of wealth creation is like 6,000 words. It's like, a, it's like 10 Paul Graham essays all in one. Yeah. And I struggle with that. How, how should you share the information? Yeah. So I love what Eric Jorgensen did with the Almanac of Naval Ravikant because he took the, all this information that was out there and put it in this format that we as a society like value and find easy to consume. And so it'd be amazing if someone did that with Paul Graham, where he's got all of these 800 word essays and put it into a consumable format. And so it's not just on this website that was designed in 1997. <laughs> Never updated. <laughs> you know, but like put it in that format. And it can be this whole collection of essays similar to how like Jason and David from Basecamp write or Derek Sivers writes. Like, you know, it could be this short little book. But like, I would love that. And so, yeah, test your ideas and essays and then later package them and put them into a book. So is that your plan for a book? If you're going to write a book, sounds like you're sort of set on a book, like to write little essays and then test out which ones are good and compile them into a book. Or do you want to just like sit down, start to finish huge book? I'm kind of, kind of doing both at the same time and we'll see <laughs> which path works better, but I like short books. You mm. know, I like the ones that take a few hours to read. And so that lends itself well to uh, shorter essays. And, and yeah, same thing. One of my favorite books is the mom test. And like I did a podcast with Rob Fitz, the author of the Montest, and like you could listen to the podcast or in the exact same amount of time you could read the entire book. <laughs> so it's kind of like no reason for the podcast to even exist. And that's why I'm like a super bullish on like these short essays or these really short books where you just get the idea across and the idea like really sticks. There's a great book. I've talked about it on the podcast a little bit, uh, but Sam Parr turned me on to it. He's a huge fan of it. Uh, and I know he's on your podcast recently. Yeah. It's called Made to Stick. And it's literally, have you read this? I haven't read it. It's on my list. It's great. Uh, see, I can't recommend it enough. It's literally just an analysis of like what makes ideas stick. And a big part mm -hmm. of it is story. Like, like there's, I think, six principles. And the sixth one is story. The other ones are, you know, simplicity, credibility, uh, concreteness is a really good one. So if like you're talking about sort of abstract ideas, it's really hard for people to remember that. But if you like put like really specific examples, you know, like you're talking about like an apple or a fox trying to catch like a, a skunk or something like people just for some reason, our brains are wired to remember it. Like I remember your story when you were like, God, how to be like, when you were writing authority, so it was like 2013, yep, I remember looking exactly. at your newsletter and I was like, ah, Nathan's so inspiring, but like everything he does seems exhausting. Like <laughs> that's what <laughs> stuck with me. I was like, it seems so exhausting having this newsletter. It seems like he's like running so fast. Like I just want to like code an app, you know, in my pajamas and like press a button. So I was like, okay, like this patio 11 guy resonates with me a little bit more. But like, <laughs> right. I remembered your story because of like the exhausting part of it. Yeah. Cause I was writing a thousand words a day every day. Yeah. And like, that I did not well. want that for myself. No. <laughs> you got a tweet recently, uh, and I want to talk about ConvertKit because we're, we're talking all about newsletters and writing. But your tweet was very interesting. It came from a blog post, I think, on the Harvard Business Review that said there's really only four types of value propositions that companies can have. Uh, so, like, best quality, this is like Louisville Slugger, you know, the best bats or something like that, or the best phones from like Apple. Uh, then you got your best bang for your buck. So, that's the cheap stuff IKEA, Chipotle, Toyota. Number two is luxury and aspiration, you know, like the Rolexes, you know, the, the goods that people aspire to have to kind of show off their status. And then number four is a must have, like you just kind of have to have this. So that's Stripe or, you know, some sort of server tool you install and you set it and forget it. Like, uh, arguably it's, it's ConvertKit, you know, like I kind of have to <laughs> have to have something to send my emails with, but then you have a ton of competitors who might be like, okay, we're like, we're the best in class. We're the luxurious, you know, email marketing tool, or we're actually the best quality. How do you think about ConvertKit fitting into that framework? Well, I tweeted it because 
I was sitting with that question myself and I wanted to see how other people were, were handling it. And, and of course, everyone took the tweet as like, oh, let me point out all the other types of things that there are, you know? And I was like, well, just go read the HBR article where they talk about how like, great, but it, those all kind of boil down to the other four. But my favorite reply, two different friends, Ryan Delk and Sean Blanc, both replied and they were like, all four of these describe Chipotle. Chipotle is an aspirational <laughs> product, best in class, best value, highest quality, you know, like everything. I was like, all right, I can agree with that. So I was thinking about ConvertKit's value proposition and it's hard to be all of those unless you're Chipotle. And so it's like, which one are you trying to be? I think you want to be a must have, but honestly, like if ConvertKit didn't exist today, indie hackers would run fine on MailChimp or something else. That, that gets into the question of like, how disappointed would you be if this product didn't exist, which is sort of like the product market fit question. And I think in a, such a competitive space like email marketing, it's really hard to be the must-have. And I put Stripe down on the list of one that I would put as a must-have because I just think that no one else has come close to competing with that. And it's kind of funny, right? As all these platforms are launching payments and like, should you do payments on Substack or Clubhouse or ConvertKit or TikTok or wherever else? And Stripe's like, I don't care. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like, you all fight. We'll just take a cut of everything. Yeah, you're the boats, we're the ocean. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think, anyway, I think the must-have is really hard to do in this space. And where I ended up is I want to be best quality. That's where we want to position ourselves with some of this aspirational element to it. Like, one thing that, that actually Barrett, our COO, wrote down in his notes is your favorite creator's favorite marketing tool. So like it's sort of the best best quality um, mm. aligned with this aspirational side of things of like, and I think Apple does that really well, right? You look at all their marketing and it's the producers and the artists and the right. you know, musicians and all of that that they're featuring in their marketing. And so you're sort of like, oh, I'll use this so that I can be like Phineas, the music producer or whoever else, right? So that's where I ended up in that. And that drives pricing decisions. Right? Like, should Convert have a $9 plan or a $15 plan instead of starting at $29? And I think it's like, well, if you're going to be best quality, you don't have to compete at the very bottom end of the price. So I don't have concrete answers, but I have a right. whole lot of notes about <laughs> which would be best. You said something that was really interesting. It resonates with how I think about indie hackers, which is that you want ConvertKit to be your favorite creator's email marketing tool, which is uh, it's like the bread and butter of indie hackers, a sort of aspirational, inspirational, like, share stories. And I've seen like, you've done a lot of stuff around sharing stories. Like, like previously, like before hearing you say that, I'm like, why is ConvertKit sharing all these stories? I don't know. I don't understand their content marketing strategy, but you've got like books featuring creators and you've got like your conference where people, like, creators get on stage and talk about their stories. You sent uh, Isa out to interview me, I think a year or two ago before the pandemic. And you guys hired like a professional photographer. You did a whole interview with me that like wasn't really about ConvertKit. Like I think I barely mentioned that I did ConvertKit. And I was just like, yeah, people like Cortland, uh, they'll read a story. You got a lot of really good photos on there. Actually, a quick aside, like you had a professional photographer come out, take a bunch of photos of, of me. You put them in like an Unsplash album or something. And like I have literally every single week, I get like five people who are like, why is your photo on this random website selling speakers? Like every SaaS startup just like Google's like Unsplash, black guy on computer, black guy on podcast or something. Something's going on like that. And my photo's all over the web. <laughs> but that photo of you on Unsplash is insanely popular well a whole, it's insane like, you had a super sweet studio setup right and like sort of the the moody lighting going on and 
everything else. And yeah, I was just on another, I was on Teachable's website actually. And it's just so funny. Like there was the photo of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on their features page. I get that all the time. Oracle sent out like a PDF of like our year in review or something. And my landlord sent it to me. He's like, is this you? Is this my apartment? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it ended up there. So it's like a good growth hack. If you want to be uh, an internet model, get a bunch of professional photos taken of you. Uh, I guess do some SEO hacks on Unsplash, figure out what people are searching for, and then just make an album of yourself and you'll end up on a thousand random websites. But some of those have been downloaded like two or three million times, which is crazy. Same reason you're doing with indie hackers, right? That's the content that people resonate with. And there's a couple worlds, right? There's sort of the creator marketing, you know, become a successful creator world. And then there's like the internet marketing in the sleazy way, which is the get rich quick, everything else. And we... We want to, like our mission is to help creators earn a living, which may not be that different from like a ClickFunnels or someone who's like, yeah, we're here to help you earn a living. And so how do you differ, How do you accomplish the same goal, not in a get rich quick, one weird trick to make money on the internet. You're one funnel away from, and they're basically promising that as you make money in this way, it'll solve like all of your, all of your problems. And I'm like, I think you're one funnel away from like a more effective marketing funnel. But I don't think that you're one funnel away from like self-actualization or a better marriage or, you know, whatever else. And so we really struggled with how do we, the whole goal is to help you earn a living, help you use our software, you know, to earn a living as a creator and not have it come across as like all of this sleazy, you know, basically get rich quick and actually legitimately like what you and I are trying to teach people of, you can build a real business, earn a living. There's a system and process to it. And we found that storytelling is the best way to do that. And so we're deliberately featuring a broad range of creators from, you know, photographers to fashion designers, to podcasters, to fitness professionals and everyone else of like, this is how they did it. In the I Am A Creator book, which is the one that you're in, it starts off with the story of a lawyer turned food blogger. And actually the fun thing is she read our first book called I Am A Blogger that one of her friends gave her. And that was the thing. Like she read that book and then immediately quit her job. <laughs> and then, so that's why we had to feature her in the second one. Doesn't that feel crazy that people are like quitting their jobs because you like put out a book and someone's like, I'm going to change my entire life. Cause you know, I heard a podcast episode. I read like, <laughs> you're like, this is a side project that I made. <laughs> right. You're like, oh, that's <laughs> both wildly inspiring and absolutely terrifying simultaneously. So it's basically, we think storytelling is the best way to accomplish that. And so we're just trying to do it as much as possible. There's this idea, you know, in uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey of talking about the different roles, the hero, the guide, and all of these brands try to make themselves the hero of the story. And it's like, actually, the most effective marketing is when you make yourself the guide. And so you're trying to do it through the product and you're trying to do it through stories and examples and, and all that. And so we just go absolutely all in on that. And now we have a full-time in-house filmmaker and Issa telling stories and we hire photographers and, and all of this. It's crazy how fast stories spread. It's like, it's, it's what people want to share. It's what people resonate with. Uh, with Andy Hackers, we sort of stumbled onto this completely by accident because I was just doing interviews and I wasn't conceptualizing the interviews as a story at the beginning. I was just sort of asking random questions. And then like the ones that resonated the most were the ones where the questions were like kind of chronological and people were like, well, I want to hear the story, et cetera. And now it's like the bread and butter of indie hackers are kind of like these AMAs where like, hey, come do an AMA on indie hackers. And like, you know, people are like, what should I write? I'm like, oh, just tell your story. And like, then that person is kind of the hero of their own story. But as like a reader, 
uh, you don't care about any hackers and like you kind of care about this person because you're projecting yourself into their shoes. You're like, wow, like what, you know, what she did is so amazing. Like, how do I do that? And then because it's an AMA, it's like, <laughs> you can just ask her how she did it or you can read her story or you can share her story because it's just so much more memorable to consume a story than it is to consume like a PowerPoint presentation. You know, that's like, that's not how humans are like wired to, to like remember and share information, you know, like something happens in your tribe, like you tell a story like, hey, did you hear about like Jonas? He like stole a pencil from Marie and then here's how it went down. You remember that and everybody spreads it, but you're not like, you know, let me make a PowerPoint presentation of these 10 bullet points. Nobody remembers that. It doesn't get spread. It doesn't get shared. Even on Twitter, a lot of my friends who are doing really big on Twitter are just doing these huge threads where they just tell a story and break it into like 15 tweets. And like when you're scrolling through like, you know, a lot of bite-sized you bullet point tweets and you see like a real cool story, you're going to get into that and you're going to share it. So it makes so much sense that like that's the content that people really want. It resonates and it's just incredibly inspirational. I'm realizing that I haven't, I've written a lot about ConvertKit story, like as we've gone along, but I haven't written like one post that tells the whole arc and then jumps off to all the random content. So I'm going to actually go and do that because just because that is interesting to have one place of like zero to where we're at now. And highlight that. Who knows? Maybe we'll do that. And I suppose you'll end up writing probably again and again. Because like if yeah. you wrote, you know, all of ConvertKit's story five years ago, it would now right. be missing five years of information and your perspective would be different. And I bet you the way you write about the early days today will be so different than you saw the early days at the time. And that doesn't mean like your perspective now is inaccurate. I mean, it'll be a little bit less accurate, but it'll be... Uh, it'll be just more context. You'll see much more about like how the world was changing, where you were and sort of the, the landscape and the ecosystem where at the time it's probably harder to place yourself. You probably weren't as confident. You probably had more doubts, et cetera. So I'd love to see you do that. That's my favorite thing about writing year in review posts is that you get to lock in your own like mindset and worldview at that exact moment in time and then read it again later and be like, oh, that's what I saw was possible. That's what I saw as my biggest struggles. You know, that's what we accomplished that year. And you basically, it's the only way effectively, you know, that you get to, to capture exactly what you think and that worldview from that moment. And then when you look at it five years later, you're like, oh, that's funny that that was what I was struggling with. Oh, that's <laughs> great. You know, and it helps see the growth because otherwise you just feel like you're in this constant struggle and it doesn't get any better. But if you have the, that documentation, either through the stories or your review posts or interviews, you look back on, you're like, oh, okay, I have grown a lot. Like one example is, a year ago, we hit the the pandemic and every company leader was trying to figure out like, what does this mean? How do we lead through this? Like maybe churn is really high, but new revenue is coming in and how do we take care of the team and everything else? And I think like three years ago, four years ago, that would have been way more than I could have handled. I probably would have figured out how. But a year ago, we'd been through a lot already of challenges in the company, whether it's a PR crisis or you know, server outages or anything else. Right. And so it was just like, it was challenging, but it was at the level that I felt I could rise to the challenge. And so it's interesting to reflect on the things that you encounter today. And you're like, Oh, past me would have really struggled with this current me. It's like right at the edge, but I can take care of it. You've been through a lot. I remember being at the, uh, I think I spoke at your conference where you unveiled like the new name of ConvertKit and it was like Sever. And I was like, this turns out to be like a holy word in this religion that really doesn't want you appropriating it for your company, you know? And like, that's a crisis that you survived that wasn't easy, I imagine. Cause like you put, I mean, it was like a really big, probably expensive unveiling and like a lot of rebranding, a lot of marketing. And you go through stuff like that and you're like, you know, you look around and like, you're not dead. And you're like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> the world keeps moving, you know? And like, I can survive, you know, bigger and harder things. Yeah, that was a, about $500,000. 
that right. <laughs> went into that one. I mean, it's still a huge amount of money, but then it was especially a huge amount of money. That's why I think it's so important in like sharing numbers and work in public and any of that, that you, you got to share the ups and the downs. Probably one of the more painful articles I've ever published is titled There and Back Again. And it's about ConvertKit's name change. And I sat on that one for a long time. Like I actually just published it two and a half years after the name change, you know, and part of me was like, you know what? It's now past that. Like, I don't, I don't need to bring any of this up. But I've also thought with like, okay, no, do work in public for a reason. We don't just share the highlights. We got to share the struggles and lessons along the way. And so that was a more difficult, but important post to write, at least to be authentic and, and consistent. I remember being like the very beginning of Indie Hackers and my server went down for a day and I was like, oh no, <laughs> my problems are the worst problems anyone's ever experienced in life. What am I going to do with myself? I was at the top of Hacker News at the time. No one could load the website. And I was like, this is over. Like, it's like I'm going to have to pack my bags and like do what? Like go get a job, <laughs> get a job or something. Like nothing happened. Everyone forgot about it the next day and it was fine. But uh, the challenges of being a founder, you know, and as I guess ConvertKit has grown, you've sort of... Uh, you're still like the face of the company. You know, I think ConvertKit, I think Nathan Barry. But I see your tweets and I see your posts and you're sort of like, oh, the best thing I've ever done is like no longer be product lead. Or like, you know, the ConvertKit's easy to run. I can do these side projects because I have other people who I trust running stuff. And so you're sort of like stepping away from the day-to-day -day responsibilities and like delegating to, I assume, people who are insanely talented and who you trust. There comes a point, and this is both wonderful and challenging as a founder, where the effort that you put in doesn't have that big of an impact. It used to be that if I sent five more sales emails or like push for an extra couple hours in, I guess, Photoshop at the time, pre-Figma, um, you know, designing an interface to helping get this, this feature out, like that would meaningfully move the company forward. And now I'm sort of in this, this place and it, it takes a little bit of getting used to of like, look, if you work on ConvertKit for an extra two hours today or an extra 15 hours this week, it is the tiniest drop in the bucket compared to the hours that 65 other people plus another 50 contractors, you know, are putting into building and growing the company. And so on one hand, there's like this, you know, bit of an existential crisis of like, I don't matter anymore, you know, or um, like this individual effort doesn't make this big difference. And so that can be good for a step back of like, look, I don't need to grind it out at this computer to have the biggest impact. You know, that's where you hear a lot of people talk about like, Oh, as a CEO, I started going on long walks and that was actually the most, but like time to think and, and have space is so good. But then the flip side is that anything that you do on strategy, long-term thinking, setting the direction, like if you're wrong, you end up being wrong by a lot because you just had like hundreds or thousands of hours of people's time go into pursuing the wrong thing. But if you're right, then like you get incredible leverage on that. And so it's this weird world between like, you don't matter. The individual effort that you put in no longer matters. It mattered a lot in the early days. doesn't matter now. And also then in the other sense, like it matters more than it ever has. And like, don't screw it up <laughs> because there's everything that you do has all this weight behind it. Yeah. It's like a multiplier on everything you do. It's basically yeah. like your labor no longer matters, but your decisions matter a hundred X, a thousand X more than they ever had, which is a lot of stress because like, what even, how do you even describe a decision? What goes into a decision? It's just like ephemeral thing where you're like, well, I think I have pretty good knowledge and I think I've checked my sources and talked to friends. And like you, for example, just acquired a company called Fanbridge, 
Yeah. No idea how much the acquisition was for, but I assume it was expensive. This is a mm-hmm. big company. And they're, they're, I think they do like newsletter distribution for the music industry. Yeah, exactly. So their email marketing for musicians been around since 2006. That's like, that's a big decision, you know, and now a lot of people at ConvertKit and a lot of people at FanBridge are working based on this huge decision that you made. And like, I have no idea of like what even went into that decision or what your goals are, but like that's probably a lot of pressure. I mean, that was an interesting one. Being our first acquisition, you always have these ideas of like, oh, acquisitions will be a great way to grow, to grow or maybe they'll be terrible or, you know, who, who knows what, right? You, you just don't know and <laughs> until you've done it. Uh, and so part of the reason that we did the acquisition was are like expanding into the music space. And I think you've probably seen a lot of that with ConvertKit over, over the last year in particular of like launching creator sessions and doing all these live like at-home concerts with musicians. And and basically as we went in the early days from ConvertKit's for professional bloggers to now all of creators and now pushing that limit even more with musicians like Matt Carney and uh, Tim McGraw and Amanda Palmer and others. Um, mm. Then it was like, okay, musicians is a market that we can go after. Like, how can we accelerate that? And then also, how can we consolidate the market? You know, it was an interesting play. Like in the music industry, the most popular uh, email marketing tools for musicians, number one is MailChimp. Number two is Salesforce Marketing Cloud, which is kind of weird. And then number three is FanBridge. And number four is ConvertKit. And so we looked at that and said like, oh, we can actually, like, I can't buy MailChimp or, or Salesforce. But like I can buy this player and like, you know, double the number of musicians on ConvertKit or more than double by quite a bit. Um, yeah, that's, those are like really big moves. And I think about like what we were talking about earlier, the fact that there's these different channels you can put the word out on, right? And like that's a big decision you have to make. Like where am I going to, not only what am I going to produce, but like where am I going to produce it? And for you, it's kind of like, okay, not only like, you know, what decisions am I going to make at ConvertKit, but also like what company, what companies am I going to buy? You know, what industries am I going to enter? Like is music even the right industry? You know, is an email marketing uh, sort of newsletter company the right entrance? Like I think my very first, yeah, my very first podcast guest was this guy, Jason Grishkoff, who ran like an ND music discovery blog. And apparently there's like thousands of these blogs where people like subscribe to the blogs to discover music. It's just this huge force that I didn't know about. I'm like, oh, this is why like, everybody knows like new music and I don't. But like, you know, you could have started there. You know, there's like so many different avenues. And I, I wonder like how much of this is like your passion for music, you know, out of all the different arts, out of all the different things that are, there's like a huge agricultural industry in the newsletter space. Uh, you know, there's like, like every industry is kind of in the newsletter space. Why, why music? At an executive meeting, I guess it was like 18 months ago now. We're all sitting in a room, you know, doing our our planning. We're just talking about where we want to go next. And someone asked the question of like, what types of creators would we be most proud to have as customers for ConvertKit? And everyone gave examples of musicians. And so then it was like, great, you know, we get to pursue whatever industry we want. You know, we did the due, due diligence to make sure that it was a space that we thought we could enter and win in, like that it made sense. But then also in the, like your favorite creators, favorite marketing tool, like in that angle, a lot of people, their favorite creator is a musician. You know, you think about some of the best writers are, you know, a lot of hip hop artists who are putting out like incredible rap music or whatever else. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's also sort of this leap from the internet subculture that like ConvertKit is well known in up to like actual culture. If that right. Uh, and one thing that we said is we want to be powering the creators who are actually like driving culture. And so music was a great place to go for that. 
strikes me as a little bit ironic that we're talking so much about like these creator stories and the power of story. And then this episode is like, not at all story-esque. It's just randomly me talking to you, like we're having a normal conversation, which is honestly like my favorite thing nowadays, even though it's not as motivational as stories. But uh, there's one thing I want to talk about before I let you go, which is just this whole creator economy thing that's exploded. Like it wasn't even a term a year and a half ago, like no one was saying creator economy. Or maybe they were, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a mainstream brand name VCs investing in the creator economy. Whereas today it's like, that's literally all I hear about all the time. Creator economy, this, creator economy, that. Everybody's got a newsletter. Everybody seems to be making money. And it's super exciting because I think people are able to generate revenue and like create a business for themselves and like find financial independence online without having to be a software engineer. You know, they can write a really good newsletter and put it on ConvertKit and like start charging subscribers. Like that's not a thing you could do two or three years ago. What's your take on the creator economy? Like, is this here to stay? And how do you look at kind of the competition in particular? Because Twitter, for example, is a huge distribution channel. You know, a lot of people get discovered on Twitter and they're just like, they just straight up bot review a newsletter company. And they're just like, we're just going to bake this directly into Twitter, which I imagine is probably pretty scary for like the gum roads and maybe the convert kits out there where it's like, oh, well, uh, we don't have, you know, a billion people on a platform using it every day like Twitter does. There's a favorite I'm sure I should dig up the graphic because I can picture it in my head, but that someone did of like the popularity of email newsletters over time, you know, and it like peaks and keeps going up and it's up a lot. And then they like transposed in their like email is dead headlines from like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, like, <laughs> 2014, 2000, like all the way along of like, it's totally dead. Everyone said it as it like 10 X's in, you know, in popularity, you know, so everyone has always said like email is dead. Social is the next big thing. And we've been fairly quietly, you know, as a self-funded company, just building the space, being like, okay, but we're seeing people build bigger and bigger newsletters. No, we think this is a good thing. And so it's been interesting to be doing that all the way along and then now have like this spotlight come shine on us. I don't know. I had like the eye of Sauron, you know, as like an example. <laughs> like now it's shining over here and you're like, oh, everyone's like, I guess I have amazing. the ring. And so... On one hand, it's super exciting because people would be like, you're starting a newsletter before? And now they're like, oh, yeah, you have a newsletter? I have a newsletter? Oh, this is great. And I love it because there's so many people now that would never have done that before and now can do like exactly what you and I did of like build something, say to like the $100,000 a year in revenue, like to add, to have a creator business that you've built up to that level is a pretty amazing life for yourself. And I think that's so approachable now. Everyone's got a little bit of a different take on it, you know, as far as how to charge, what the value proposition is. Right. Um, is there, like in Substack's case, you know, a paid newsletter is the way to earn a living as a creator. And in our case, we take like, uh, like Hunter Walk had this article, the multi-skew creator. And that's very much sums up the way like ConvertKit's approach and what we talk, have talked about in the books and everything else of you can earn a living in the way that matches your style. Like that might be a course. It might be a paid newsletter. It might be sponsorships, you know, whatever else. Like there's a whole range of options. Might be a hodgepodge. I was talking to Jay Klaus and he's got like, he had his own sort of like accelerator he was running with like, you know, 10 or 20 people he was mentoring. And he also had like contract work he was doing and like a newsletter and like a podcast with ads. And it's like, yeah, when you're trying to get to that first like 100K in revenue so you can replace your job, like you might have to stitch it together sort of like this Frankenstein monster as a creator that quite frankly is hard to do if you're only on Substack because right. that's it. The people got to subscribe to your newsletter. You can't really sell anything else. I, I don't even know if they allow you to do ads. You technically could, but they're like 
editorially against it. But there are plenty of people who do who you know do sponsored posts on Substack and stuff. So like Twitter buying review was really interesting because it was just more validation in the space. I could end up being totally wrong on this, but I don't think that review will end up being a wildly successful newsletter tool or competitor. In the same way that we don't have anyone switching from ConvertKit to Substack, I don't think we're going to have people switching from ConvertKit to review. My hope is that it will grow the, you know, the pool a lot more. The pond will get bigger. Like we have a lot of people who would have never thought about starting a newsletter and then they start a Substack and then they get to 10,000 subscribers and they're like, this is amazing. Now I need <laughs> all these features and they graduate from Substack over to ConvertKit. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? I'll, I will take that all day long. Yeah, it's pretty nice to be the bull that catches all the water dripping out of the leaky bucket of Substack and review because they're just increasing the top of the funnel and you're there right. to catch it and actually help people build bigger, better businesses. The other fascinating thing is like, 10,000 subscribers or, or say even 100,000 subscribers is a really big Substack. Like one of the biggest, if you get that to 100,000 subscribers. What's fascinating is that's actually a relatively, like that's a mid-sized newsletter. Like the biggest newsletters on ConvertKit are well over a million subscribers. You know, the Tim Ferriss's, Gretchen Rubin's, James Clear's of the world. They're all huge. We just don't do as probably as good of a job marketing it because we sit behind the scenes. Like I think of it as... Substack is to Amazon as ConvertKit is to Shopify of like Substack is taking a much bigger cut. They're like front and center in the brand. You know that you're buying from Substack. Whereas like if I'm buying from a creator on Shopify, you know, for their e-commerce store, I like as a person who pays attention to user experience, I'm like, I can tell this is Shopify, you know, like almost everyone doesn't know. And that's the approach that we're taking of like the creator should be front and center. You should have like the highest cut of revenue. You know, like on ConvertKit, payments are 3.5%, whereas on Substack, they're 12.9%. So I say it differently, and almost in a way, Substack is like telling a story where they are the hero. And in a way, it's super flashy, because everyone says, oh, Substack, Substack, Substack. But you go to any sort of particular Substack landing page or uh, newsletter, and they all kind of look the same. It's very hard to differentiate. You know, it's not right. really creator-focused. And ConvertKit's the opposite. You're, you're the guide. You're in the background. You're Yoda, you know, you die in the second or the third movie or something. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, Luke goes on <laughs> and, and ends up having like, you know, a, a great legend is told about him. And then that seems to be the good place to be. You know, I, I'm going to guess that you're generating a hell of a lot more revenue than Substack is. And you will for uh, probably time immemorial. The last question I'd like to ask on these, on, these, on these shows is basically, you know, if you search through your story and like what you've learned, what do you think indie hackers out there need to hear? What's something that they can take away from your learnings and your experiences. And it doesn't need to be the most important thing. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is that it takes a long time. Uh, and so when you look at compound growth of any kind, you have to give it enough years for it to compound. And in the early days of what I was doing, I was like trying something and then jumping to the next and like that kind of worked. And so I'd learn a lesson and roll it into the next thing. And that was great. But if you look at the most successful companies, usually someone has been grinding away at it forever. Like in our space, I think about MailChimp. They started working on MailChimp in 2001. You know, they're 800 million a year in revenue or, or something like that. They haven't said numbers publicly recently, but you know, eight or 900 million is where I would like trend them to be. But the kind of the funny thing is ConvertKit is eight years old. And if you were to overlay MailChimp's revenue graph, starting year zero at founding with ConvertKit's at year zero at founding, ConvertKit is significantly larger revenue wise than MailChimp was eight years in. 
But the thing that most founders end up doing is that they they end up selling early, moving on to the next project, giving up too soon or anything else where they're like, oh, look at this compound growth that, that they're getting. And it's like having $1,000 in your stock account. And it's like, yeah, it's compounding, but it's not compounding yet. Like give it another decade and then it'll really compound. And so I think about a competitor that we had in the early days called Drip. We were founded like at exactly the same time. For a lot of reasons, he made the decision to sell Drip. And I think that was absolutely the right decision for him and his family and, and everything else. But like ConvertKit is going to be a wildly larger company because, you know, we didn't sell relatively early. We stuck with it for a long, long time. And it's, and now we're getting the compound growth on that. So I guess the thing that I would say to indie hackers is like, it takes way longer than you think. And it's worth it if you keep going. I love it. It reminds me of the uh, beginning of the pandemic where everyone was talking about exponential growth and people weren't afraid because like, look at the numbers. They're so small. They're not much higher than they were last week. It's like, yeah, when you're getting compounding growth in a small number, it's pretty, it's pretty small at first, but it ramps up very quickly. And if the same thing applies you know, across the board, Andy Hackers, I think, should heed your advice and know that like, yeah, things might not be crazy in the early days, but like, if you stick with it over a long enough period of time, you can get to a pretty life-changing outcome. So can you let people know where they can go to learn about the million and one side projects you're working on and also what's going on with ConvertKit. Yeah, let's see. Well, you should go subscribe to the podcast. I uh, just searched Nathan Berry Show uh, in you know iTunes, Spotify, et cetera. And you can subscribe to my newsletter at nathanberry.com. And that's where I write about everything and like link off to the random random things that I'm doing. And then I'm most active on Twitter, just at Nathan Berry. Berry is B-A-R-R-Y. And uh, DMs are open. Email is open. Just get in touch any way you want. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks.